Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Brandy Tsunami Knockreiner. <laughs> you're from China? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> on today's, uh, if you're on YouTube, poorly lit ballroom episode, uh, we are coming to you yet again from WatchGuard's Apogee Partner Conference, kind of hiding in the corner to get this recording done. But we'll be covering, I guess, three and a half kind of news topics today. Uh, starting with a few stories building up over the years around a state-sponsored threat actor group, then diving into a small but very interesting ransomware incident that happened to uh, some of our poor friends in the United Kingdom, and then ending with, first, a change in naming conventions. Is this the one that sticks for yeah. cyber threat actors? And then... A By the way, it already hasn't sticked because Typhoon is China. I accidentally picked the one that was appropriate, Mark, because I, Tsunami, is private sector offensive actor. Aha. <laughs> so I'm a private sector offensive actor. <laughs> As Corey hinted, we will dive into a specific threat actor in one of these sectors and some of the latest activity that they are doing. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and storm our way in. <laughs> So let's start today with the first news story, uh, which is kind of a, a collection of stories that have occurred over the past few years or so. I wanted to highlight some new activity from our, uh, I was going to say very good friends kind of sarcastically, but it's, we're not very good friends a at all. state sponsored or a state adversary to at least uh, Five Eyes Nations right now. Yep. Uh, so this, the story actually kind of starts back on May 2nd. So Microsoft published a blog post. Uh, about a increase in Iranian threat activities uh, over the course of the last year or so. Uh, they pointed to a new playbook that Iran was using that's leveraging cyber-enabled influence operations, as they call them, to achieve geopolitical gains. And they had 24 specific operations that they highlighted from the last year. So as an example of a, a cyber-enabled influence operation, um, basically they are uh, operations that combine offensive cyber activities uh, along with a, quote, multi-pronged influence operations to fuel kind of geopolitical change. So a lot's been going on in Iran politically over the past yep. few months or so, a lot of protests there. They haven't always had friendly relationships with their neighbors like uh, Israel or obviously the United States, kind of because, you know, we let the cat out of the bag with Stuxnet, Stuxnet. and kind of yeah. nailed them a bit ago, allegedly. Yeah, to be quite honest, it's hard to get mad at them for doing cyber operations against us because, well, I happen to side with the United States and I don't want to allow other dangerous authoritarian countries to have nuclear arms. I mean, we did do a black operation with Israel that leaked. So no wonder they have their own cyber influence going on. Exactly. So as an, an example of one of these operations, uh, they're designed to kind of undercut nationwide protests. Uh, they do things like leaking information that they've stolen in order to embarrass opposition figures. Uh, they'll compromise accounts with them. They will use SMS, like text messages, and even victim impersonation to try and drag people's name through the mud that they disagree with. Uh, Microsoft highlighted one example in mid-February of this year where an Iranian-backed uh, group launched a ransomware attack against Israeli targets. And, you know, typical ransomware operations, encrypt them, usually steal data these days, go on your dark web blog and say, we stole data from Lockheed Martin, and we will release it if they don't pay this ransom. Uh, so 
Iran or these threat actors took it a bit further. So they were going under the name of a dark bit. Uh, Microsoft theorizes it's to give them like a little bit of uh, plausible deniability. False that was, flag so that it's not obviously the government doing it. Correct. It might be some is you know Iranian-based ransomware group or criminal underground. Yeah, but so the ransom note, not only did they say we stole this data, um, but they even called uh, within the note Israel a apartheid a regime that should pay for occupation, war crimes against humanity, and, and killing, killing people. people. So they're like they're using ransomware extortion notes in these public blog posts as just another way to do geopolitical. geopolitical it's kind of this mix of you know ransomware activity, so threat operations and uh, the type of stuff you usually see in like state-sponsored news media, yeah. as an example. It's By the way, it's not the first. I mean, it might be the first that's doing the messages with the geopolitical influence, but obviously, there we know that state-sponsored Russian actors do the same thing with Rus- with ransomware. Not Petya, you know, was another false flag that looked like normal ransomware, but that's how Russia, you know, distributes destructive wiper malware. So the Russians are trying to kind of separate that this is really a state-sponsored situation by delivering what looks like ransomware from criminals, but really the only goal is to wipe, not ever uh, allow you to decrypt that ransomware, and really they attack targets in Ukraine and other countries. that they. So not the first time, but the geopolitical, having a dark website or having a ransom note that you know has these geopolitical messages is kind of interesting. Yeah. So I also I want to go back to a prediction that we had, I think it was 2019 leading into 2020, if my memory is correct, Uh, which this was kind of geared towards the United States. So we were going into a, what we assumed and what clearly ended up being a contentious election period. And our prediction was that it wouldn't be election hacking, like actually hacking voting machines that would uh, be a major issue for the year. It would be more influence campaigns. Uh, around trying to influence voters uh, yeah. with potentially sponsored by nation states outside the U.S. Yeah. And I think that prediction hit in the U.S. Like yeah, we pretty saw much. Of Russian bots. bots on Facebook and other other social media organizations. I think we even talked about it maybe in the last podcast where rather than maybe part of the prediction was they would support, you know, in this case probably Trump, we thought. In this, the actual influence was more no they're going to polarize both sides. They're just going to support lots of extreme views to stir up the electorate, no matter exactly. what side you're on. It's easy to, uh, as a opponent of a nation, it's easier to get ahead of them if that nation hates each other. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It. So it totally makes sense. And it makes yeah. sense that Iran is using these same methods for other countries that they're against, like the U.S. and very much Israel. Israel, yeah, and Palestine, talking about, you know, instead of uh, trying to... Uh, occupy a nation <laughs> exactly so this isn't the first time uh, clearly that they've done this uh, it was last December uh, Proofpoint put out their own article highlighting some additional Iranian state-sponsored cyber activity which has an interesting little bit hidden inside of it that I found highlighted in another article just recently so mm-hmm. going back to Proofpoint, similar to Microsoft uh, they noted that the goal of this activity was to either influence or silence opponents um, they noted that there were a few actually changes to, on a technical level, to what Iran was doing uh, in the recent years. So previously, when they would do some of these influence operations, they would use their own accounts, like they'd sign up for, let's say, like Twitter or whatever, and then they would launch 
uh, tax or influence operations from there, set up their own email accounts, set up their own infrastructure. They found that they were actually pivoting to using compromised accounts instead. So wow. maybe they go buy a credential off the dark web, use that account to then go after a uh, an organization or an individual. There was one example. So they said moving um, and one example in 2021, uh, approximately five days after the U.S. government publicly commented on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action negotiations, which was around the Israel-Palestine, uh, the official's press secretary was targeted via compromised, a compromised email account from a local reporter. So they were trying to fish the secretary of this, and they did that through, by compromising a reporter account and going after the press secretary. Yeah. Makes sense to get like kind of that adjacent activity. And we see that outside of geopolitical too. Makes sense to go, if you want to target a, like a consumer, compromise the vendor that they work with potentially yeah. and fish your way in through that too. And it's a, it's a smart thing to actually make it seem more legitimate. When you were saying they made their own accounts, it's not like these state-sponsored threat actors use their name. Yeah. But what happens on social media is it's trivial to make bot accounts. Uh, and there's even software tools out there Obviously, if you just made a bot account, it wouldn't have friends, it wouldn't have connections, so it'd be obvious. But there's tools out there that automate making 100 accounts, connecting them to each other. But even with that level of connecting them to each other, it's pretty easy to detect it's BS. Facebook. This is a BS account, yeah. so anything I see from it is disinformation. So this twist of actually using a real account of a real journalist or, or whatever person that they're actually compromising adds legitimacy, unfortunately, to the disinformation they then spread with it. Now, in terms of the uh, other things they do, <laughs> in terms of the actions on objectives that some of these campaigns had, uh, <clears throat> there was another one in May of uh, 2022, so just last year, where a Israeli media uh, reported on a phishing email that was di designed to lure targets in order to kidnap them physically. physically. Yes. Yeah, wow. Specifically, there was Iranian uh, intelligence officers that tried luring some Israeli businessmen and academics that were abroad in order to either kidnap them or gather intelligence. So this is getting a little like yeah. nuts at this point. But the, with the malware, of course, you can get geolocation. You can look at social media to see where people are in vacation. Like yep. if people like us, point, hey, we're in Lisbon right now at the partner conference. Oh, good time for me to go figure out where Mark is. And Exactly. <laughs> yeah. If I'm trying to potentially kidnap him for intelligence yeah, yeah. on the United States, you yeah. know, you know, I'm going to be here. It's <laughs> a bit creepy. By the time you see this, we won't be here anymore. Correct. So yes. sorry. <laughs> Good so, luck, Iran. Man, that's a bit frightening, but I think in general, like it makes sense that we're seeing kind of cyber operations mesh in with this influence. Like it's yeah. it's been going on for a bit, and I can only imagine it's going to keep ramping up as our world continues to become more polarized. Unfortunately, absolutely. Where's the end in sight for this? Like, when do we all just say, okay, enough's enough. Let's sit down, sing kumbaya, and like all be friends. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Even before technology. I'm supposed to be the cynic. Dang it. <laughs> you know, one kingdom would always kidnap the knight from another kingdom or the princess. So I'd, I don't know, man. If only we could all get along. Yeah. Well, maybe sometime. Probably not ever, though. The good news is I'm sure we'll have tools to still make it harder. The techniques, the, the technical cyber techniques to do it, you know, are new. But uh, Maybe this we'll is where ChatGPT can help. It yeah. can identify some of these influence operations. Before they happen. Oh, we might yeah. go minority report where AI, ah. you're a criminal before you even do it because ChatGPT predicted that you might try to, to kidnap someone by 
putting a fishing. I thought that movie was supposed to be like a warning on doing that. Yeah, and and everything about it, advertisement, (laughs) NFC that detects you're nearby, wireless tracking us in grocery stores to give us... It's happening, man. Mm -hmm. As stupid as we thought Mr. Tom Cruise was waving his hands around and getting things to happen on a computer. I mean, that's what AR (laughs) hand tracking is literally doing. Yeah, it's... It might be more real than we know. Privacy does not exist anymore. (laughs) Uh, Moving on, though. So there's a kind of short story that I wanted to go into where it started in February of 2018, a company called Oxford Biomedica, which, as you may guess, is a biotechnology company based in Oxford, England. Yep. Uh, And back in February 2018, they suffered a ransomware attack where cyber criminals managed to gain access to their networks, deploy ransomware, and then demand a extortion from them. So the ransomware attack itself, it's not notable. I mean, this happens all the time. I think we've talked about ransomware attacks individually (laughs) a bajillion times. We won't get into that. What's interesting for this one, though, is during the attack, uh, an IT security analyst for Oxford Biomedica was a part of the incident response team, as you might expect. They were working alongside their colleagues and the, the police to try and investigate and mitigate the damage. And unknown to this organization, though, unfortunately, uh, the employee began their own separate attack against the company. Uh, So the employee used their access within the company uh, to modify the original blackmail email (laughs) and change the Bitcoin payment address on it to a Bitcoin wallet under this employee's control. Then they also set up a new email address designed to look almost identical to the threat actors one. So like a spoofed phishing email, basically, and use that to try and uh, influence the company and pressure them into actually paying the extortion. To By pay. the way, that's ballsy. And I, I think we'll get into what happens to this person. I won't spoil it. But I mean, you're not only stealing the ransom from your company, you're stealing it from the threat like this. There yes. have <laughs> been cases of ransomware employee bribery, right? Meaning a ransomware group that emails, there's been emails found where they actually email your employees and say, Hey, we'll give you a million dollars to the ransomware if you help. Yep. But that's the actual group, you know, participating in the bribery. This guy seemed to be taking it from everybody. Taking which, off both sides. Yeah, yeah, you're going to get caught, man. Once the ran- once it's paid, if it was paid and the ransomware group didn't get the money, you know, I, I don't know what, what he was, what they were thinking. Alongside this, he apparently also accessed the private emails of the company's board, board. Yeah. Uh, over 300 times, and that's actually what got them caught. So the investigators found the unauthorized access to private emails came from the security analyst's home address. Uh, they ultimately arrested them and seized their electronic uh, electronics and storage devices. He had actually gone through the efforts to try and wipe all them to but he must remove not incriminating have zero byte. I mean, not multiple wipe. <laughs> Correct. Yes, because uh, they <laughs> were able to recover it. all of the data and have proof of his crimes. Oh, so last week in a court in the United Kingdom, Come he was on. convicted. If you're an IT guy perpetrating this type of crime, you got to know that deleting something doesn't delete it unless you take some more action. Well, let's head on that for a second. I want to. This isn't designed to give cyber criminals uh, tips on how to do their activity. But let's talk about the operational security, the OPSEC failures in this case. So you're a security analyst. Presumably, you know quite a bit, or at least some, about cybersecurity. And you're on incident response, so clearly you understand what you would be looking for in these scenarios. And you are connecting to your board of directors private email addresses from your home Uh, IP address 
without a proxy, Come on, without spin up a VPN, <laughs> grab a Linux distro that has full. I, I mean, it's insane. One oh one. Yeah. <laughs> And then, you know, you, you still would have gotten caught, but at least it would have been harder. Then you go through the effort of trying to mask your tracks by overriding your storage devices. Yeah, but, but presumably, you like you them. just what reformatted it with a quick format, yeah. and, which does nothing. Or, or worse, delete them. I yeah. mean, when you delete something, you're just removing the little bit that the file tells it what yes. the file is. But any recovery, you, you have to overwrite multiple times if you really want that data. This is like some Mickey Mouse threat actor activity here. (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, I mean, it's uh, no wonder there's a, what is it, a a brain drain on security, a lack of security skills if people that are in the field don't actually know how to do it right. It's insane. So like either though, like you mentioned the, the employee delivered ransomware or whatever. And like, that is a trend we've talked about on here before where you, you get paid to do it. You even, what was it like? popcorn ransomware i think it was called where yeah. the extortion demand was either pay or deliver this to two other companies and you can get and your data you back get, to yeah. like we've seen those models before but this of you're hit with ransomware and then you and your bright mind go wait a minute i can profit off of this yeah. let's screw my company over i'm going to piss off organized cyber criminals and my board and my company all at the same time that's this, a good idea not a great great decision <laughs> making from that particular employee's uh, perspective. Hey, but, he got caught. So, but insider <laughs> threats—they are a real risk to organizations. Absolutely. And in this case, they caught him by reviewing access to these these board members' email accounts. And I think that monitored access to accounts is a, really the only way that you can potentially catch this activity. Like anomalous access, anomalous activity. You know, they saw it came from his home address versus coming from presumably addresses they normally connect yeah. from or internally. Things like that can be red flags to at least make you go and investigate and see, you know, was there a someone, was this legitimately the person logging into their email or is it someone that got a hold of their credentials? I guess thinking off the cuff here, does this imply they didn't have multi-factor authentication enabled or was he like accessing the exchange server from home and then reviewing messages? I guess if they had admin on it, but why would they, like a company shouldn't have admin on the board's email server. That's, man. Anyways, OPSEC failure. Uh, he was convicted in court. I think the sentencing is in mid-July. Yeah. Uh, the conviction was on blackmail and unauthorized access to a computer with the intent to commit other offenses. But I guess key takeaway, uh, if you are not doing uh, monitoring of your legitimate or your actual user activity within your organization, you're going to miss you insider threats. And zero trust. And we're not going to go yep. over what zero trust is. What you is zero trust, Corey? No. How much we, time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> but this is why zero trust exists. It's, yes. you, it's not that we don't trust all the employees, but you want to limit collateral damage by giving each employee as least privilege as possible so they can't have access to other things. I guess it's harder with a system admin like this guy, a security person, tends to be you know nice with the IT admins too, so he's probably more privileged than average. But there's still ways you could segment someone. Or even, uh, what I, I can't think of the term, dual keying. Like there, mm-hmm. there shouldn't be only one person. There's certain functions that should take both Administrator A and Administrator B to approve together before like launching happens. the nukes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so before we jump into the next story, I want to cover something that, if I remember correctly, you kind of hinted at like a few episodes ago when yeah. we were discussing a funny name of a threat actor that yeah. researchers had given them. 
Uh, so Microsoft is going all in. Exactly. So previously, Microsoft's naming conventions for threat actors uh, were named after either elements. So like strontium is one I think we talked about a lot, you know, polonium, radium. They could be named after trees or they could be named after volcanoes, which they're absolutely arbitrary. And I guess they probably picked them because they sound cool. Like strontium is a cool name for a threat actor. But on the face of it, if even if you are in cybersecurity, if you like didn't already memorize these names and what they meant, if I told you, oh yeah, I was strontium, where are they based out of? You wouldn't be able to answer that. Like there's no way of knowing. And so while the name sounds cool, it's pretty dang useless. And I think Microsoft kind of realized that. And, you know, as we see, you know, uh, we need a standard for naming conventions. Well, let's come out with our own standard for naming conventions. We now have a new naming convention standard for Microsoft. Uh, unfortunately, they did not choose to adopt MITRE's uh, naming, whatever they're doing, Number, yeah. with threat actors numbering. Um, but at least this new one that we're going to cover, it helps a little bit, as you'll see. At least you can map uh, a state or a type of attacker to, to something that's consistent. Yeah. So this new naming convention is based off of weather events, uh, and it can at least help point to like the origin or category of the threat actor uh, only off of the name, assuming you understand the naming convention. So basically each threat actor will have a, a family name, as they call it, to categorize them, paired with an adjective to uh, distinguish these threat actor groups and, that have distinctive tools, tactics, procedures, infrastructure, objectives or some other identifiable pattern. Uh, so there's only like a dozen family names. And so let's go through them right now, just so everyone knows them at this point. Uh, so it's broken into kind of five categories. So there's nation state. And for, within that category, there's China, whose family name is going to be Typhoon. There is Iran, which is Sandstorm. By the way, can we pause right at what you just said? Uh, the FBI, and I think the FBI went with Trend. There's mm -hmm. already a Sandstorm. There's that's, a, that's Russia. There is a Sandstorm. We dealt with Sandstorm. Sandworm. Sandworm, okay. okay. Yes. So that's confusing, but I guess I should have known it was that's Sandworm. A, that's an animal that's confusing. from a fictitious I guess it's not a, yeah. Yes. So anyways, weather events, China, typhoon, Iran, sandstorm, Lebanon is rain. Surprised that's not Washington state. <laughs> uh, North Korea is sleet. Russia is blizzard. South Korea is hail. Turkey is dust. And Vietnam is cyclone. Uh, then there's also what they categorize as financially motivated. That's going to be tempest. There is private sector offensive actors or PSOAs, which is tsunami. There are influence operations which is flood, and then groups in development. So basically ones they haven't quite figured out, they're trying to learn them, that's going to be storm. So newly discovered clusters of activity, they're going to get a temporary designation like storm 0257, storm 18342, whatever. Once they reach a high enough confidence of the origin, uh, that temporary des designation is going to be converted to a name threat actor like Aqua Blizzard. So it's still really dumb. But at least that family it's, name it maps to something. Yeah, Blizzard. Like now I know a, Blizzard means Russia, and so yeah. whatever the stupid adjective is, at least I know what country. So the list is. you gave though is not all the types for the family name though, because Microsoft just did publish size a new. Basically, it was Clop, the people that were mm -hmm. behind Clop ransomware, and they do financial hacking. Yep. And the part that does map, it's financially motivated, so it's Tempest. 
but Microsoft calls this group Sangria Tempest, and I don't see what type Sangria belongs to. Oh, so Sangria is the... They said it was supposed to be an adjective. Sangria is a noun, unless I, I know. failed so English. I don't, but, so. but they literally call it Sangria Tempest, and it is financially. So I'm, I'm curious so we've got where a new Sangria standard. comes, but, and they're and already breaking already it? Already ignoring it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And by the way, Sangria Tempest sounds like a drink. As I, we were actually, when uh, one of our threat people were talking about this, everyone knows Sangria, red wine, I think a little bit of brandy and fruit. So what, what would a Sangria Tempest be? What would make it stormy? I have a little bit of vodka in it. No, vodka, <laughs> vodka's tasteless. So we, we were thinking dark spiced rum. Okay. Something about dark rum. I think pirates in a storm. Yar. Or, yeah. So <laughs> I think I'd rather drink a Sangria Tempest than talk about a So now that I'm group. thinking on this, like the Microsoft's blog post that they published was very clear that it's going to be an adjective in one of these family names. But... All the ones that I've like kind of looked up in the process of this, it yeah. was all noun and then family name. Yeah, and their tweet, it's from Microsoft Threat Intelligence. So there are already kind of, maybe there's a new... Maybe whoever wrote the blog post doesn't understand <laughs> actual grammar names, components, and it is yeah. going to be noun and then it... Yeah, I have no clue. At whatever. Anyways, now if you know Blizzard, it's Russia. You know, Sleet, Lebanon, or Sleet, North Korea. Man, already screwing it up. And uh, Typhoon, China, so... Get those memorized. I'm sure we will be using these again sometime in the future. And Such hopefully as Microsoft. Five seconds. seconds. Yeah. What's, what's the next one? Does this sound like a drink too? So this one is all around a threat actor called Volt Typhoon. Okay. So listeners, you just heard what this. What is Typhoon? What is Typhoon? It is China. <laughs> so last week, Microsoft published a blog post uh, highlighting their discovery of a targeted malicious activity focusing on post-compromise credential access and network system discovery aimed at critical infrastructure. That was a lot. Uh, they have associated this activity with a threat actor they've called Volt Typhoon, which is a state-sponsored actor, uh, state actor based out of China. Um, so they believe that Volt Typhoon are they're pursuing capabilities around disrupting critical communications infrastructure in the United States and Asia, presumably for some future crisis. If we were to, God forbid, go to war at some point, uh, they would definitely want to disrupt our critical communications infrastructure. And so this activity they're doing now is kind of finding out where the holes and the gaps are and where points of weakness are. It seems they're targeting our infrastructure in Asia specific, like not necessarily, I, I mean, maybe they want to target it all, but not back home mm -hmm. or even in that, but China is in Asia. So if they really? can disrupt, oh yeah, I, I learned that. Did you know there's seven continents, Mark? Really? <laughs> Anyways, I hope that's true. Uh, but anyways, yeah, it's 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 not like they're trying to cut off all of our communications, but they want to make sure that the Asian communications go away if anything were to happen. Yeah, so Microsoft highlighted places. some activity in Guam, Guam specifically. Which makes sense, because it's where we have military bases, for sure. Yep, so. and probably some undersea cables popping up above yeah. the ground, connected straight to San Francisco. Uh, so anyways, they noted that they, um, they've been on operations since mid-2021 with a lot of operations targeting Guam, the U.S. Um, they emphasize stealth in their operations, relying exclusively on living off the land techniques yeah, and hands-on keyboard activity. 
So not a whole lot of, you know, dropping trojan.exe, mostly using. This is getting credentials and using tools you have that your administrator uses and maybe your users remote access tools to actually get in and do bad stuff. Yeah. And so it actually their initial access starts with something that's a bit concerning. Uh, Microsoft knows that it involves uh, Fortinet FortiGate devices, but as of right now, it's a unknown exploit in them. Presumably to, for some to, internet exposed service. To be, do they know it's an exploit for? Because to be fair, it could be credentials. Fortinet has had past very old vulnerabilities mm-hmm. that allowed. While it was their SSL VPN appliance, I would presume if you have something that was leaking a lot of, it was literally leaking credentials and certificates, and I presume the administrators that logged into their SSL stuff might use the same credential for the FortiGate. So they, but could uh, it be a credential instead of an exploit, or do they think it is an exploit? They put out a little diagram along with this blog post yeah. uh, showing effectively the cyber kill chain. And for initial, or I guess not cyber, the MITRE attack framework, framework. and for initial access, what they listed exclusively was a unknown Fortinet exploit. So they do think it's an exploit and not yeah. just some leak credential. So uh, once they get onto that device, they leverage uh, Active Directory credentials that are used in it, like presumably similar to uh, Fireboxes. It needs to communicate with the domain to get user groups, things like that. So they'll use that account and attempt to authenticate to other devices within the network using those credentials. Um, if you get internal access to, you could also just mimicast or packet sniff yep. to get hashes and tokens on the internet and can play with pass to hash and other Kerberos token validation issues. All of their communications to these devices. Um, <coughs> Sorry, I just wanted to offer a cut opportunity sure. for that cough. All of their communications to these devices are proxied through small office, home office, network edge devices. So think routers. They list a bunch of like consumer ones that you would find on a shelf at Best Buy as targets for this. Uh, They said it's basically things where owners have exposed HTTP or or SSH uh, management access to the internet. Why would anyone do that? Please don't expose Mm. management access to the internet for any device that you have, period, (laughs) ever. We can't throw stones here, but we've been telling you this for a while, even before the thing I'm talking about. Oh, so we absolutely can throw stones here of people of that are exposing management access to yeah, the internet at some point. You might deserve a small stone. I don't know if Fortinet has the same docs that we did on the proper way to allow remote access, but yes. it's not smart to, to put your administrative interface of security or remote management things on the internet. Yep. Uh, So once they've gained initial access, when they try and gain additional credential access, they've been using um, PowerShell with a Base64 encoded command that executes run DLL32 in order to dump the local system authority subsystem service. They don't even have to pack it. They don't have to packet sniff. They grab the hashes directly. No packet sniff, no minimicats. Just use built-in libraries in order to dump that process memory in order to steal password uh, hashes, presumably. They'd have to crack that, obviously, but trivial. Mimikatz is the one where, through that tool, you can... Mimikatz has an option to do the LSS does. thing, but... What I'm getting, it's got a registry entry it can modify, too, that causes passwords to yeah. be saved in clear text instead of hash. Yeah. So with this one, just going straight at it, you get the password hashes using, like, Mimikatz as an but, example. But you said the important point. I mean, Mimikatz is not living off the Correct. land. They yep. use a binary for this. This method of actually using run DLL to do it manually is purely living off the land. Same, similar technique. I mean, Mimikatz has 12 techniques, but this along with the clear text one, along yep. with network packing sniffing, are all capabilities of Which, to be clear, version. you can do all that with PowerShell, too. It's just Mimikatz makes it really easy, easy. for even dummy hackers to do it on their own. I.e. <laughs> 
I wasn't going to say it. Uh, it also uh, uses NTDS util uh, to create installation media from domain controllers. Basically, you can use your domain controller, create a new image, disk, whatever, to create a new domain controller. And by doing it this way, it includes some usernames and hashed passwords to make that installation easier and join it to the domain. It also means you can take that image and crack those password hashes offline if you're a threat actor. Yeah. Uh, so interesting technique there. Uh, for device discovery, um, they're using PowerShell, uh, Windows Management and uh, Instrumentation Command Line, so WMIC and Ping to find new hosts. Um, they're sometimes checking whether they're in a virtual environment. I feel like all of us sometimes should check to make sure we're not in a virtual we, environment. We I are feel definitely like in the matrix, according to Musk. Being simulated right now, yeah. <laughs> no, that that's obviously, they're doing living off the land, but they still don't want to be on a research computer that's monitoring them. So yep. it's a, a sandbox evasion technique that they're just doing live rather than building into their Trojan or malware. When it comes to the data they're stealing, they stage it as password-protective archives before mm -hmm. exfiltrating it out, presumably so like DLP controls at the network level can't see, see inside it. of it. Um, when it comes to command and control, so they're primarily using just compromised accounts to log in. So they've gained credentials, cracked them offline, and now maybe they can log in with a VPN or access a internet-exposed service. That's their main method, but sometimes they're using NetSH, uh, the uh, port proxy, to create proxies to uh, infected or compromised systems to get that access. They also use some custom versions of open source tools like IM Packet and Fast Rever Reverse Proxy to establish C2 communications. But again, primarily just they've gained access, use the account, log into the front door, yep. which makes sense. Like, why go through the effort? with noisy, potentially noisy methods when yeah. if the company is not monitoring user authentications, they might not notice that this one's coming from Russia or a server stood up most likely. So the same local. way you'd look for weird insiders by monitoring weird authentications from a legitimate user is also the way you might want to monitor for living off the land attacks that is taking advantage of your user, but not necessarily a they're not an insider, they're just compromised. Yep. Yeah. And Microsoft's recommendations, by the way, for this, if you were impacted, so if you've discovered this activity, it's the no-duh, maybe disable the compromised accounts and change their credentials. Credentials later, yeah. Uh, identify whether the LSAS process uh, has been dumped on different machines and figure out what the blast radius for user accounts is there and perform the same action on them. Check to see if any domain controller installation media has been created, and if so, identify accounts in there that you need to change, so on and so forth. For defense, so first off, they recommend enforcing multi-factor authentication. If you're not using MFA at this point, why? Seriously, just set it up. It's easy, it's cheap, simple to use, simple to manage. Uh, they recommend blocking credential stealing from LSAS, so there's some hardening uh, registry hardening entries you can use. Yeah. Uh, they link it in their documentation too. Uh, they recommend blocking process creation that originates from PSExec or WMIC. That said, there is a caveat. This may and probably will break your RMM tools if you're using them because they most often use PSExec or WMIC to actually perform actions on these machines. So keep that in mind. Test it out on a subset of machines, see if it still works, and then continue rolling it out. Uh, they recommend blocking the ex uh, execution of obfuscated scripts. This is another one they didn't highlight the caveat, but the reality is a lot of legitimate tools will use Base64 encoded scripts, which is obfuscated, but the reality is that's the easiest way to transmit data over a network. Yeah. So a lot of scripts end up like that. 
I know our RMM tool we use, like all the commands you send, they're all base 64 encoded. So it flags as obfuscated scripts regularly. And then uh, whatever EDR you're using, whether it be Microsoft or preferably WatchGuard, uh, make sure you've got it in what they call block mode. So don't allow uh, untrusted or unconfirmed good programs to run. False positives aside, by the way, besides having an EDR in block mode, things like WatchGuard EPDR, which includes EDR, some of these indicators, of, some of our indicators of attack cover some of this, like at least blocking execution of obfuscated scripts. I mean, a WMIC execution, yeah, WMIC. an LSAS processed op- operation. I think yeah. that's all built into even just the our IOAs. core EPDR. Yeah. So either way, like it's seen nation state threat actors abusing living off the land techniques, as we've been saying has been growing. Like this is an evidence of them exclusively using that to try and fly in under the radar. There's no malware being dropped. And it makes yeah. sense. I mean, it's uh, that that's why you need more advanced EDR versus EPP to catch this kind of stuff. And I think a lot of the at least um, the more SMB organizations just may not be able to detect this level of threat yet. I'm actually seeing a lot of similarities between EDR now and like MFA, how it was three, five years ago, where yeah. it used to be like some of the guidance that even we would say is, you know, privileged accounts has to have it there. Maybe you can meter your rollout to unprivileged accounts. Now yeah. we're at, you need MFA everywhere. Like yeah. it doesn't matter what type of account it is. They can leverage that access to elevate their access, move laterally, whatever. EDR, I think we're at a point now where it is becoming a kind of foundational requirement requirement for cybersecurity for all I think the the thing that hasn't happened with EDR but is happening now, I know we're doing it as a company, is you you mentioned one thing, it wasn't always foundational, it was only enterprise MFA. But the other thing that MFA was hard, it it required servers, it was complex, it required hardware tokens. That complexity has gone away too, but in EDR, you know, we're the, the thing with EDR is all these indicators of attacks. Mark pointed out they can be false positives too. So just because you see execution of an obfuscated script, you don't block anything, you don't stop anything with EDR. You note that you send an alert, and. Uh, traditional old school EDR required instant handlers to be looking at all these indicator of attack. It wouldn't automatically prevent right. something. It would give you lots of indicators that you add up, you go and research and you realize, oh, this isn't just you know our RMM using base 64. I've seen five different things. This is a threat actor mm-hmm. and you had to push a button. So I think the next level that EDR is going through now is trying to it will always probably need some level of an incident handler, but it's trying to automate the correlation of these these things that you can't treat as for sure bad, but when they start adding up in a certain way, they are bad. Build out an activity tree so you can yeah. see exactly what's going on easily. Yeah, like, make, make it easier at. for the incident handlers, but then later on some automation that might start to take action even without the incident handler if enough things build up in the right way. So the first part, as you say, it becoming something you absolutely need now, that has happened. But I think we'll see its complexity go down based on automation, even things like data science and as much as we gag saying AI all the time. Let's call it machine learning, not AI. That that will help too. I saw it uh, on that last note there. Uh, I saw it perfectly explained where if it's written in uh, Python, it's machine learning. And if it's written in uh, PowerPoint, it's artificial <laughs> that, intelligence. That's damn right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
accurate. But, I mean, joking aside, you are absolutely correct. There is no way for an EDR to actually function correctly without a good machine learning, multiple machine learning yeah. models behind the scenes. Or instant handlers that are actually paying attention to the alerts. Because it's not just like antivirus blocking something. You, yep. do, you have to see these indicators of attack and go and do something about them. Exactly. This podcast sponsored by WatchGuard EPDR. <laughs> <laughs> Go we like it, it, man. We use it. Yeah, it is extremely powerful. Go buy it. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you might be able to reach out to us on Twitter. I heard it's been having some issues lately. Yeah. Uh, it's because I'm announcing my presidential candidacy. Elon Musk going to interview me. Wait, we just lost all audio again, didn't we? No? Okay. No, that was just Twitter. <laughs> I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey's at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week. Ciao. <laughs>